a random encounter at a broadcasting facility, a shared interest and love of all things Marvel, Excelsior, a misinterpreted program title, and behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick, podcaster and comic book enthusiast, and Eddie Wilson, upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Jim Starlin. And Jamie Jamison. This is Marvelous with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome everyone to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our special guests... We want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them, our social medias. That's right. He said guests, plural. There's more than one. All right, go ahead. Exactly. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at The Marvelists. You can also find us individually on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, at Peter Melnick. I'm on TikTok. God knows why, but I don't care about that one anymore. But there's one social media platform where you can find Mr. Eddie Wilson, and that is... The IG, Instagram, at Eddie9193. But don't forget, Facebook works, too. Well, how can people get a hold of you on there, Eddie? Eddie Wilson, Facebook page. Well, I mean, there's many Eddie Wilsons, Eddie. Well, the one with the sunglasses. I, I, in the daytime, <laughs> in the studio. <laughs> Good enough. Anyway, you can also find us on a wide variety of streaming platforms, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, Spotify, etc., etc. If it's got an app where you can listen to music and stream stuff with RSS feeds, Yamo be there. I hate that joke every time I make it, but I don't know why I make stop it. Stop that. You stop that. <sighs> Anyway, you can also find us on iTunes. Rate, review, subscribe, share ever so nicely and politely. Give us a five star. You know, just five. Give us a five. Tell us. Tell High us, five. Tell, tell us we look nice. You know, that we got a nice haircut. You know, Eddie's got like a nice goatee going right now. Just let us know. Give us praise and adulation. Anyway, you can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Marvelists. And help support the show for as little as $3 a month to as much as whatever. <laughs> A million dollars. You can also support, well, no, $1.5 million. Yeah, we'll figure it out. $2 million. Because then Eddie gets a million, I get a million. It's a, point, ni- it's a nice uh, split. Point five works, too. But You can support the show, get early access to episodes, get our undying love and gratitude. You can also get, with the $5 and up tier, the Fantastic Voyage, where we talk about every single issue of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's iconic Fantastic Four run. And in the archives, we've got a ton of guests where we talk about those. Also, finally, you can support the show at belowthecollar.com slash the marvelists. Well, wait, I'm going to give you the ability, Eddie. There we go. Too late. No. Keep keep going. Too late now? (laughs) Could be. Like I said, support the show at belowthecollar.com slash the marvelists or slash the marvelists. There we go. I just love when you say it. It makes me feel good inside. But. Like I said, if you've made it this far, God willing, you are Dad Joke Immune, and you can buy the Dad Joke Immune t-shirt, and you help support this here fine program. Now, Eddie, joining us on the other end of the tin cannon string, it is a three-way call. We are joined with... Oh, you were doing the introductions. I I was leading up to the intro, and... I think you're more qualified for this than I am. Okay. Well, whereas we usually have two phone lines coming into the studio, we have one, and that first is directly connected to the one, the only creator of Thanos, among other characters, Jim Starlin. Jim, welcome back. Well, good to be here. How are you folks doing? We're doing very well. Better now that we're talking to you, really, in some kind of way. We want you to pass on the intro and who we have connected here. 
Well, now uh, with me today is uh, my very talented anchor and uh, close friend, uh, Jamie Jameson. Hello, Jamie. Hello. Hello. Welcome, Jamie. We appreciate you being here as well. Thanks for having us. <laughs> and one of the things about being an anchor, it is one of the most unsung jobs in the realm of comics. It's very much one of the most important jobs, to be completely honest. And what got you into wanting to become an anchor? <laughs> just kind of fell into it really um it was not something i thought i was gonna do um just um kind of started working on uh like layouts and such with american gods with uh Scott hampton and p craig russell and uh, i've always just done some art stuff and then i started inking over a couple artists uh, started inking with keith giffen and then uh, jim asked me to get a book and here i am <laughs> It's a great way to start, and you can't make this up and stuff. So, so congrats on that. And what we're talking about now is something something new. I don't know if we want to get into that right away, or start with a, a different path, maybe Dreadstar. Well, I might want yeah. to add on to the fact that uh, Jamie just sort of skipped over the part where she sort of got me back into drawing. Uh, <laughs> I had about four years ago blew uh, a big hole in my right hand, my drawing hand. <laughs> and, had stopped drawing for a number of years. Wow. And uh, I've been working out with Aurora Ball during that time uh, and going to some conventions and working as a writer, but uh, I pretty well figured my drawing days were past. But uh, Spencer Beck, my uh, agent for getting uh, uh, convention appearances, came up and asked me if I would try and do this Dr. Doom uh, story for a friend of hers who I've met once, Jamie. And uh, he tested me for this drawing until I finally sat down and did it and found <laughs> that it didn't hurt as madly as I had been hurting whenever I tried drawing before. And I did a few more other drawings, some convention drawings, which I asked her to ink, and she did a very good job on those also. Or uh, for the first time, I, I'd seen her doing work on Keith's work before. And uh, so when it came time to, to doing the dress star book, she was the person I went to to ask if they if she'd like to work with me on the inks. <laughs> That's sorry. A, it's like paying it for. You know, it sounds like, and I'm sorry if this sounds, if I, I mean this to be lighthearted and stuff, but it sounds like, Jamie, I don't know what you did before the inking, but you may have had another calling in, like, physical therapy. <laughs> I don't know about that, but... <laughs> She's such a nudge that she can't help but uh, work for her. <laughs> okay. Got it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Great. I'd be, a, I'd be good at telling other people what to do, but then I'd be like a hypocrite because I'd be the one like, oh, you can jog 10 miles. And, and I'd be like, I don't want to do it. <laughs> You're an enabler. There you go. <laughs> and it's I'm looking through the uh, Dreadstar Returns right now, and the job you guys did on this book is absolutely phenomenal. And... There, there's one part in here that I'm just I for, don't remember the name of the artist right now, but I'm getting big time vibes of the guy who worked with uh, Frank Miller on Rusty and Big Guy, the Big Guy and Rusty the Robot, and just that level of detail and good lord, it looks good. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, I've never seen Rusty the Robot, uh, so I'm not sure who you might be talking about. <laughs> I'm actually googling it right now. <laughs> There's a there's a guy that uh, Frank worked with that had a lot of science fiction 
mechanical stuff. I, I, I don't remember the name of that one. Jeff Darrow. Jeff Darrow, yes. I, I am getting... We went off and worked on uh, a Superman in that, too. Yeah, I am getting straight-up Jeff Darrow vibes on this. And just like I said, the level of detail and the complexity of this. Good stuff. Well, we I... had fun. You know, I mean, uh, I was uh, in New York at the time working on it, and uh, Jamie was out in uh, L.A., and uh, so we were sending this stuff back and forth and talking on the phone all the time about it. Uh, Jamie ended up getting the coronavirus in the middle of the job mm-hmm. uh, and uh, surviving that. Uh, so uh, it's it, this has been quite a labor of love on a lot of different levels. <laughs> Surviving it, yeah. <laughs> well, we're glad to hear you made it on the other side, Jamie, and uh, things are things are better now, at least in that respect. Yeah, the crazy time to be sick. Um, crazy time to, like, you think you've got all this time to ink and you're, you know, locked in, you can't do stuff, except if you're one of the ones who's actually sick and locked inside. <laughs> you're like, um, it's not as much fun being quarantined and getting productive. <laughs> And Especially of, if you've got a heartless boss who keeps saying, I need more pages. I need more oh, pages. No, I oh. need the color. I need the color. <laughs> and, you know, we're slowly but surely returning to a level of normalcy, and that means conventions are starting to become a thing again. And, like, that is one of the things. Like, what do you do? You miss the convention scene with, you know, being able to experience the large crowd, seeing, you know, fans, and just having conversations with the, the comic book fandom. Well, I've always had sort of a mixed relationship on that front. Uh, as much as I've enjoyed going out and uh, doing this, I also have a little bit of hesitancy about actually communicating with the people I'm writing and drawing for. Uh, I think there should be a, a bit of a separation. Uh, you write, if you start getting too close to your base of uh, your, your readership base, uh, I think you start writing to them rather than writing for the writing itself. And so it's always been a mixed thing. But I have a terrific time at the conventions, and I'm looking forward to going back to them here come, uh, now that we are returning to normal. I definitely miss our friends. I miss the, the artists, the fellow artists that you don't get to see except for these conventions <laughs> or to that part as long as um, they're coming out again. <laughs> it's like a family yeah, reunion. Well, going back, Jim, we had spoken to you at least once before, and that was in person. That was at an Albany Comic Con in the, it seems like a really long time ago, but I think it's got to be about two years. Three. Um, and we were in the midst of the Marvel movies, getting close to a around Infinity War and Endgame and so on. So we mostly spoke about Thanos. I don't know how many other things we touched on as far as your work is concerned, but let's talk about the, uh, I guess, many incarnations or companies that have had Dreadstar. Wherever you want to start, you want to start from the beginning, of course, I would assume, with Epic. Well, that started with Epic and Archie Goodwin and uh, Mary Jo Duffy, who were the editor and uh, assistant editor, respectively, on the Epic Illustrated uh, magazines. Um, We started off with that, uh, got about three episodes in black and white, and uh, Archie was very unhappy with the color work he was getting in at that point and said, can you... Changes this over to color, and so uh, just about the time Dreadstar entered the, entered the Metamorphosis Odyssey, we went over to color, finished off that 12, I think it's 12, uh, episodes of uh, 
that series and ended the Metamorphosis Odyssey, I still had stories to tell of Dreadstar, who was never meant to be the lead character. Uh, Ankadon was going to be the lead character, but the story just sort of took off and uh, Dreadstar sort of took over. Um, that was followed by The Price, which was over at Eclipse because it was a character in Metamorphosis was something I owned the rights to. And so I took it over to uh, the short-lived uh, publication house, uh, Eclipse, and worked with the Mulaney brothers on it over there. Uh, after that, uh, came back to Marvel again to uh, work on, uh, uh, do an episode of Dreadstar in a magazine called Bizarre Adventures, if I recall the title right. I might be wrong on that. So, uh, it was being edited by Denny O'Neill and... Uh, Archie found out about it and took the story away from Denny, and it ended up at Epic, uh, illustrated again. And from there, we went to the Dreadstar comic book series, uh, which uh, Archie wanted to start up at that point, which was the first book of the Epic line. Uh, did that until there was some trouble with getting paid uh, from Marvel. Uh, there was a old bookkeeping snafu that uh, eventually got us to break the contract, took it over to first, uh, finished my run on Dreadstar over at first. Uh, Peter David came in, took over, that had a nice little run working with mostly Angel Medina on the series. Uh, first eventually uh, bellied up and uh, Dreadstar ended again. Later on, uh, uh Peter David and uh, Ernie Colin uh, did a FEMA version, uh, Daughter of Dreadstar, uh, for Malibu Publications. Uh, Malibu eventually uh, disappeared also. Uh, somewhere along the line, did reprints of Dreadstar in, in uh, Slave Labor, black and white. And uh, just recently teamed up with Ominous for that uh, beautiful Omnibus uh, version of uh, all my collected Dreadstar stories in the big three-volume thing. And now we do, have done uh, the graphic novel Dreadstar Returns. And boy, have I run off at the mouth on that one. And Jamie <laughs> and I are going to be doing more, another one called uh, uh, Dreadstar versus the Inevitable, which we're into the midst of right now. Into the midst of that one. Wow. I'm just looking at some info I found with respect to Dreadstar Returns. This has been a long time coming because I think the announcement of a sort was last April in 2020. And probably it goes back further than that. But are we still looking at a 100-page story and the Dreadstar universe designated as Earth 8116, things like that? Yes, it's, it's still a 100-page graphic novel. Uh the next one will be the same. Uh, the, the books are actually like 119 with some filler stuff at the end. Or 118, I think it is. Um, but it's a 100-page story, and uh, it's 25 years after my last story, basically. And uh, I pick up the characters for what they've been doing for the last uh, half to a quarter of a decade and uh, you know, kept it with chronology of real time here, so uh, both Dreadstar and I are uh, a little bit older, and uh, 
hopefully a little bit wiser. <laughs> and uh, we got ourselves a nice little love story out of it, uh, an unrequited love story, but not a love story nonetheless. And as a creator who has a character that has lasted that long in terms of the life of the character, what do you think is the biggest difference between Dreadstar when the character was first originated to now? Uh, well, the biggest difference is he's the main character. He was a secondary character when he started off. Um, he's always sort of remained uh, at the core of himself. He is a, an anarchist with no second act. He's very good at bringing down evil empires and absolutely terrible about following up and doing anything constructive. So his, if you go back and look at his adventures, I mean, his one stint uh, at trying to be part of the establishment was a terrible failure, him as a cop. Um, so basically he, is, he has remained an anarchist, but he's learned how to put that anarchistic uh, tendencies to some good use in the new book. He, he works for something called the Willow Consortium, and uh, doesn't work with them. He works. He uh, doesn't work for them. He works with them, and uh, it has a contributing factor on that level. And the early adventures of Dreadstar can be read through the Dreadstar Omnibus. And actually, I might have an uh, itchy uh, comicsology finger because I might have slipped and just accidentally purchased the Omnibus. So. <laughs> Well, <laughs> that's a pretty big accidental purchase. Oh, you know. <laughs> I think the whole thing runs like about 300 bucks, doesn't it, or something like that? Well, luckily for myself on Comixology, it's only available for $17.99. Oh, that's true, that's true. I, I like I, I like doing my comic book reading on the throne, so I just like having paper. <laughs> now, in regards to a lot of, you know, different things with the character of Dreadstar, what also do you feel to be the biggest part of the character's lasting staying power? I think it has to do with uh, the supporting characters. Uh, you know, Eddie is probably the most popular of the secondary characters. Uh, Willow, uh, close second. Uh, Jamie and I worked heavily on redesigning her. We worked together heavily on redesigning her for this uh, particular book. Yeah. Um, I was like, she needs a makeover. <laughs> I was a little dated with my uh, Gibson girl's haircut and what have you. So Jamie would be sending me all sorts of uh, JPEGs of uh, new boots and hairstyles, and we went from there. <laughs> New boots, hairstyles, outfits, like we would go back and forth, and then all of a sudden Willow was um, a modern <laughs> Also, it, kind of, uh, it started uh, sort of more collaboration as we went along. Uh, you, have, you remember the odd creature I had to design, uh, Jamie? Odd creature. Oh, yes, that was fun. Yeah, Tell them about that. He gave me, he was like, come up with the craziest kind of creature you can think of and, and, and tell me what to, what to make. And I was like, well, I'm picturing a combination of a Venus flytrap. Uh, like, it just listed all this stuff, and I want them mushed together into one thing. And then he added a floating eyeball in the center just to make it, like, more twisted than I'd already come up with. Just to, like a cherry on top kind of thing. <laughs> and it's a very cool, creepy monster. <laughs> 
Well, that just makes for one panel. (laughs) Yeah, it's only one panel, but it was worth it. (laughs) Well, you you know what? You add a creepy eyeball as a cherry on top. I see that correlation. Oh, you see what I did there? And that just makes it creepy to begin with. So, yeah, (laughs) win-win. Exactly. Jamie, how um, uh, intense or our laborious with all the inking part of it was was your part of it? Talk about a little bit about your you know, process. Um, well, as far as the labor part, the, I'd say the labor, the most laboring part was um, doing it with COVID. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I've, I've not been inking like forever. I didn't go to you know, the Kubert school or anything. So a lot of stuff I learned um, just from doing, and I'd have to practice. I'd say, like, for uh, I, I'd go to Neil Adams' uh, comic book store, the studio called Continuity that they had there, and I'd use their copier and printer, and I probably owe them a lot of money for copying stuff because I made blue lines and would just sit there and practice, and, you know, on a blue line first before putting it on paper. Um, and it was just, it's really, you know, it's a, a learning process as I go. But um, doing it through COVID was probably a lot harder, I'd say. <laughs> that was uh, the, the big kicker. Well, then under normal circumstances, um, you find yourself going in and out of, you know, certain amount of panels per day or what other kind of, rest- rest- I was going to say, restrictions or guidelines we are working under? Um, well, generally, you try to get a page done a day. Sometimes, the, well, you, I mean, you've seen the book, so some of the pages are a lot of work. Um, some would take three days. So with the little, uh, the Martian guys, there's hundreds of them. So, like, some of those. The Martian guys. I call them Martian guys. But some of them are like, the general page. I try to get a page done in a day, a day and a half. Um, depending, some of them took a lot longer, especially the double page spreads. Like I said, with all those, like all those creatures or something, are trying to get faces right. But um, yeah, generally a page a day. I try to turn in, you know, five a week was my goal through all of it. And sometimes I'd get more, and sometimes it would be, you know, four a week, <laughs> mm-hmm. depending. Yeah, all of it was strange because of COVID, but. <laughs> now, Jim, in regards to Dreadstar, I'm surprised. Has there? ever been maybe consideration of bringing the character of Dreadstar to the big screen? Uh, we keep working on that. I've talked to people, uh, had a couple of deals, uh, actually had a, a studio deal at one point with Dreadstar for a TV series for the Sci-Fi uh, Network, but uh, the producer ended up uh, dying on me. Uh, so that was the end of that. Uh, talked to a few people since then, and talks with now. Uh, fingers crossed, nothing definite, and hopefully somewhere in the future. Honestly, I feel like Dreadstar would benefit more through a uh, serialized television series, maybe you know, on a streaming That's platform. Yeah, we're on the same page on that one. <laughs> there's, there's I think just. There's so much- Story that like there's just so much that's happened and it's just an ongoing saga that's trying to put it on a, in a film just a movie it's not enough time I've said it repeatedly on the show, but like the best way to, you know, consume these characters in terms of their backstory and whatnot is either through a streaming platform, you know, or television series or video games. A Dreadstar video game would be fun to play and you would be able to learn more about the character that way as well. Um Actually, with the video uh, game people, uh, I, I, that's not my uh, not my area of expertise. So, uh, you know, 
I'd be interested, but I have no idea how to go even go about doing that. Well, I'll rattle some cages. You have to be an avid gamer, and (laughs) I used to be an avid gamer. I can see how that'd be a lot of fun. I think, like, Dreadstar could work in the the kind of realm of maybe, like, a uh, Witcher kind of game, where, you know, just, like, sword and sorcery and kind of stuff like that. Like, I would love to, you know, swing a sword as Dreadstar. (laughs) <laughs> well, see, now this just turned into a Peter and Jamie conversation because Jim and I are a little bit out of this. But I understand I understand Peter's point. Yes, that's not a bad avenue or different media to explore. So let's keep that one in mind, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, on the topic of characters transitioning to the uh, silver screen, Jim, this is not your first rodeo. You had a uh, certain purple guy show up on the big screen. I, I hear that may, you know... Did gangbusters in terms of uh, everything. I think it left an impression, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it was probably a real snap. No, no one more surprised than I was that that happened. Uh, I never expected Thanos to be up on the screen. I always thought him too esoteric and weird. And uh, I have to ask, thank Josh Brolin and Kevin Feige to coming along and deciding that he was the one of all the Marvel characters. Uh, he was the one they were make the big baddie, so uh, no one more surprised and pleased than me. But one of the most surprising things in recent memory was a few years ago it was announced that a certain master of kung fu would be coming to the silver screen as well as a part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And my first question, just in regards to this, uh, which is the proper pronunciation? Because <laughs> Lord Kevin Feige, in the middle of uh, his announcement of all of the uh, upcoming projects, pronounced it as Shang-Chi. As, you know, one of uh, Sha- or the character's dads, how is it pronounced? I've always given it a hard A there, a harder A, uh, so making it a shame to. But, uh, you know, being uh, Occidental myself, uh, I may be wrong on the pronunciation, <laughs> dad or no dad. Now, who would win uh, in a fight? Shang-Chi and Shang-Chi versus Razagul and Razagul. Oh. Are we all in the uh, same? Yeah. I, I think the Shang Chi of today is to probably take all three of them easily. <laughs> and do we? Are we all agreed on Thanos versus Thanos? I'm just thinking of that now with that A again. Thanos has always been my pronunciation. Okay. Now is it? But gift? I'm, not, I'm not a Greek either, an Asian Greek, so I may be wrong on that also. <laughs> now is it GIF or JIF? We don't know, but either way. <laughs> now. Yes. But what is it like knowing, you know, yet again, one of your characters, you know, that not many people, you know, even like 10, 15 years ago had heard of is going to be a major focal point in another cinematic endeavor? Well, I think it's so much of it's luck. I mean, a lot of the people who are movers and shakers in the movie industry at this point were of an age where they were reading my comic books when they were a kid. And uh, a lot of it is pure luck that, like Thanos, uh, there was another character called the Sphinx at the same time uh, that Thanos was out there. Uh, Marv Wolfman character that was, I think, in Nova or something like that. It could have been just as easily been him. Uh, I got lucky, you know, um, my stars, thank them, and uh, move on, and not let it get too big on my head. And my head's big enough as it is without uh, <laughs> letting it get out of hand. Yeah. 
as a fan of your work, it's really nice to be able to see your stuff continually stay in print, by the way, because otherwise, you know, I don't want to go through the back issue bins. It's too expensive. I'm not Eddie. I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, so that, and I don't have to want to be a greeter at Walmart, so thank you for keeping me alive. <laughs> That's great. That's mutual. I, now, this reminded me, too, again, back at the Albany show, bringing you the uh, copy of the death of um, Captain Marvel and having that autographed. And how, you said, hey, wait, is this an original? I said, yeah, I got it when it came out, you know. Oh, first, first printing, yes. Yeah, exactly, right. Um, before I forget, too, Jim, your part, because we couldn't talk about it at the Albany show because it really hadn't come to pass or it was in the works. You kind of had to be hush-hush about it. But uh, how long it took to film your role, which I guess you had two parts, two two lines or two quick shots in that group I one, I session. One line. The one line, yes. And what about uh, you? About just how long it took that to come to pass and, you know, getting yourself into being on the screen, the big screen yourself. I think the better question is actually asking him about how he did doing his line. <laughs> <laughs> We did uh, uh, about eight takes or ten takes, something like that, over the the whole scene. It was being shot in a VFW hall that they uh, had set up uh, to be some kind of a shrink's office. We were in the midst of a staging area uh, that they downlit so that all she could see was us and not much of the backgrounds. And... Uh, the group of us, which was a good-sized group of about 10 people, the way they edited it down, it looks like it was only about three or four of us, but there was a great, good-sized group. Uh, and uh, we were doing the lines, uh, doing the scene over and over again. They changed the camera positions and shoot it up again. And along about the fifth or sixth time uh, they shot it, uh, I... I got into the habit of just listening to Joe Russo's do his like four or five lines and uh, before mine. And uh, we were shooting this one take and I, I suddenly realized I couldn't remember my one stupid line. What about you? And Joe's going through his uh, sentences and I'm going, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. And he finally comes to the end of his run and there's this horrifying quiet for a moment and it finally hits me and all of a sudden I explode out what about you <laughs> and everybody on the set sort of just sort of stopped and looked at me and I went well uh guess we're not going to use that day <laughs> and they didn't <sighs> so uh no that's, uh, that's why they haven't said called me back for any other major <laughs> roles there <laughs> I was hoping to get things think to be voiceover thing thing boom, but they got somebody else. Oh, now that would be yes. Now, Jim, what is your ideal version of Fin Fang Foom? Are you going to be giving him the uh, little pink shorts, or are we going to go with like a different uh, hue for this? If the Jack Kirby character has got to have the shorts on of some kind or another, and. It's very interesting, you know, as a creator yourself, you know, with writing comics, all the different genres you've been able to go into and essentially master each one. Are there any certain genres of comic book writing that you've wanted to tackle but just haven't yet? Well, let's see, I've been a colorist. Uh, I haven't lettered and I haven't wanted to. Uh, colorist, uh, scripter, penciler, inker, uh 
uh, never wanted to be an editor either. Uh, so I think I've done what I wanted to in comics. Uh, you know, I'm just going to keep doing what I do with Dreadstar and uh, see what outside influences or outside uh, interests I can cultivate in the meantime. I think we have to get you back into the circle, back into the loop, Jim, with respect to the next movie, what, maybe Guardians 3, because we've got Adam Warlock in that cocoon, so uh, let's get that going, huh? Well, I've talked to Mr. Gunn about that. I'd love to uh, watch him, uh, somebody uh, more familiar coming out of that uh, cocoon, but my guess is they'd probably do Jack Kirby, uh, Stan Lee, him first, and work their way later on into Adam Warlock. Fair enough. Eddie, get James Gunn on the horn. (laughs) I do want him to do a Pit to Troll uh, streaming series before they actually introduce Warlock. I think that would be a terrific idea. (laughs) And, you know, it's very funny, though, in regards to, like, the certain types of stories that you tell. You're someone that does the Marvel cosmic, the cosmic stories in general, and then you do a complete pivot, a 180 of the crime stories like Batman. And like I said, you know, you find a way to master them. What is the biggest thrill for writing each type for you? Uh, the biggest thrill is actually getting into it and uh, having the freedom to do some exploration. Uh, Batman, when I went over there, was in flux with everybody hating that Robin that was uh, Tim Drake, if that was his name. or uh, Jason Todd. Uh, Jason Todd, uh, uh, yeah, it goes to show you how much I cared about that character. Um, <laughs> yeah, so there was a, there was some flexibility where I could go with that. Uh, the early stuff with Warlock and Captain Marvel, those were both uh, titles that had tanked, so I had complete freedom with them. Uh, you know, the being able to run and. Uh, not get restricted is probably the best thing to do for an artist. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it's not the case these days. Uh, you work for any of the major companies, they want everything pinned down before uh, anything's ever penciled, and then it's got to stay exactly as it is in the synopsis. And I just find that a straitjacket I can't work with. So with Dreadstar Returns, then, you said, Jimmy, or intimated that you're somewhat into the next 100-page story, about a third maybe in there, and what's the timeline on, on that, would you f- figure? Oh, I've actually, uh, I've got about five of them in my head at this point, the graphic novels. Uh, Jamie and I are planning on trying to get one out each year. Uh, I think we'll be able to do that easily with uh, Dreadstar versus the Inevitable, and after that, uh, I've already got uh, a pretty good handle on the story for the next one, and uh, there's at least two more after that. That sounds like what the uh, thin hardcover books of, uh, of Thanos that were out kind of recently. Exactly. It's the same format. 100 pages uh, gives you a chance to do a great little story, complex. Uh, gives you some time to explore off in other directions other than a straight line. Um, I just, when I found, uh, when I bumbled into the 100-page graphic novels over at Marvel, uh, I found that this is a home that I I really enjoyed uh, playing around in. 
And so uh, continuing to do so with Red Star. Is that one of the uh, parameters of a graphic novel to be in the vicinity of 100 pages? Just throwing that one out there. No, they've got them at 40, 70, 60. You know, I mean, it's just that this was the size that uh, they they wanted to do on their uh, hardcover books. Uh, I don't think the pamphlet books have much of a life left in them. They are... uh, I mean, you know, the what used to be the dime books, which now three ninety five or whatever it is, the mm-hmm. seventeen to twenty one page story. Uh, I think they uh, stick around for a while because it helps on the printing, but I think in the long run uh, they're economically not viable anymore. You need a more expensive product uh, to justify the distribution of the product. So. Uh, I think the graphic novels and the larger ones are probably going to do uh, better. In fact, we found that uh, the collected versions of the Dreadstar Omnibus are outselling the individual ones, which we did expect. And uh, so, you know, uh, a higher-priced product uh, seems to be something that uh, the industry itself seems to be going for. Dreadstar Returns. I'm going to have to look for it because Peter looked it up on his phone. I need the hard copy myself. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, uh, it's only available to Ominous at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're working on getting into the comic book shops. Uh, that'll be happening down the line here. Sometime this year. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. Okay, will do. And in regards to Dreadstar, where do you see the future of the character? Do you see Dreadstar continuing as a graphic novel or what you know eventually do you think we'll see a dread star ongoing uh well i was just uh saying how i don't think the ongoing series are anything that actually work anymore uh financially i i think probably the graphic novels will be saying uh where he goes in those graphic novels is going to be uh different at times. Uh, this inevitable is uh, something that came out of directly out of the pandemic. Uh, the one after that is a, a, a tragic story of uh, perceptions, and uh, we're going to go from there and see where it goes. Uh, Jamie and I have uh, talked over these things a little bit, and uh, it looks like we... We can squeeze a little bit more uh, out of this character who's been around as long as he has already. <laughs> and a kind of a little of a, one thing is with uh, Dreadstar, Dreadstar is a creator-owned character owned by yourself. And one of the things about creator-owned books is sometimes you can bring other characters in from other creator-owned series, you know, as long as there's an agreement. Are there any characters that you would love to see Dreadstar maybe interact with in the future? Well, I've had them re- interact with uh, some of my own characters in Breed. Uh, gee, who would I uh, like to see him? You know, uh, there are some other science fiction characters out there that uh, could be kind of interesting. Uh, doesn't have to be science fiction, you know, to be some of these uh, more esoteric, uh, weird characters. Uh, uh, Dreadstar, uh, 
meeting Hellboy might be kind of fun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, you know, just have to see what happens in the future. I'd like to see an argument over swords involving uh, Cerebus and uh, Dreadstar. You know, I think that'd be a <laughs> little entertaining. Be interesting one. <laughs> And, you know, in regards to other work, you know, you're more than just comic books. And friend of the show, Jeremy Bagley, wanted to know, uh, you know, you had written a novel in 1996, Thinning the Predators. And he was wondering if you ever thought about maybe a graphic novel adaptation or if there was interest of optioning it into a movie. Uh, it's actually been optioned into a movie uh, about three times at this point. Uh, the first person who optioned it off was uh, Steven Spielberg through uh, uh, Warner Brothers, and uh, that deal fell through when he started up his own studio, Ambling. But uh, there's been a couple other people who have brought the rights to it, but uh, on that one, they always find the, uh, the difficulty in visualizing the, the psychic uh, abilities in there, and uh I always find that kind of strange because I, I, I think with what you can do in computers, you can easily, uh, very easily uh, represent it visually in an interesting manner. But nothing, uh, nothing on the horizon at that point, at, at this point on that one, or any of the other novels that uh, I did with my uh, ex-wife, Diana Virginia. We did a three of them, Among Madmen, uh, Lady L, uh, actually four. Another one called Serialized in the back of a dreadstar called Pons. So there's about four of that novels out there. And I also worked on another one on my own uh, called Mind Games, which is a science fiction one, and uh, which actually has three unfinished novels uh, sitting on a shelf uh that are sequels to that, but I'll get around to those hopefully one day. Between hearing sci-fi and then earlier, you know, like what characters and Jack Kirby, all of a sudden what pops into my head, of course, but Captain Victory. And what about... Yeah, Captain Victory, that was an odd one out of nowhere, yes. Uh, Somebody somebody did take on, uh, bought that after Jack was done, after Jack passed on, didn't they? Yeah, they had it over at uh, Dynamite very briefly as a part of the uh, Kirby Genesis project. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, I don't know if that info went anywhere or not. Uh, didn't keep track. But maybe seeing that character come back too, I don't know, would be a... Anything's possible now. If, you know, if we could have Groot as a household name, we know the Rocket Raccoon off the top of our heads and the rest of them, why not? Yeah, anything is possible. Who would have thought that uh, Stephen Colbert would be doing Thanos Stokes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, we or wish you... the president would make himself into uh, a Thanos character. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Do a video of himself as Thanos. Right. So now, before we put a bow on this episode, Jim, Jamie, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having us. It's been a pleasure. For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. And Jim Starlin. I'm Jamie Jameson. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior!